Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I am Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us today. Today, we are lucky to have on the show Anthony Bontrager. Anthony is an experienced executive in the uh, media and technology space. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Uh, great to be here. So, so Anthony, you've worked on some pretty neat things over the course of your career. I think um, just to give the audience some context, maybe could you just give us a quick rundown of the things you've done with your, your life since <laughs> since we both went to the same high school, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's been a while. I feel, I feel a little aged here. Um, but so, as you know, I've been in the, you know, the media and the, in the wireless space for, God, the better part of 20 plus years. But most recently, I've been working with a lot of venture capital investors, you know, high net worth individuals and family offices, helping them with their portfolio of smaller businesses, you know, really kind of find their way. You know, in many cases, you've got a situation where uh, the market's moved, the founders have kind of that vision, right? But the vision's not matching up with the, with the realities of the marketplace. And so they need someone to kind of come in and look at the business uh, dispassionately and help them kind of find their way. And finding their way could be either, you know, right-sizing the organization and making sure you've got enough dry powder to kind of continue to fight the good fight, uh, looking at the product set and finding new ways, you know, to either, you know, match the existing product with the marketplace or take the technology and, and basically build a new product set on top of that. Or finally, um, you know, perhaps the best thing for the business, uh, the founders and the investors and employees, is perhaps tying up with a larger strategic partner um, and giving the business itself some greater life, but albeit underneath a larger umbrella with a company, you know, with a larger strategic partner. Right. So how, how far out? I mean, let's say you come in to work with a company and take a look at what it's working on. In your experience, typically, how long does... Um, sort of the projects, your project length, duration, how long does that kind of involve you with the company? I'm typically involved in the company anywhere from six to 18 months. Um, and that's either as an advisor, in many cases I've been brought in actually as a board member to kind of take over that chairman role and have more of a hands-on role, um, you know, with the CEO and with the rest of the executive management team. So it can take a number of different flavors, but, you know, these engagements, you know, it, it's it's a fairly complex assignment in many cases. There's a lot of moving parts, There's and there's a lot of... Uh, personality issues that you need to overcome in order to be effective in these in these kind of turnaround scenarios. And so, you know, you've got to kind of get in there and be, become part of the company, understand the real issues, and then be able to step back and say, okay, I understand this aspect of, of what the business is doing and what you want to achieve. Here's where the market is right now. You know, if there's a gap in that analysis, how do we close that gap and move the business forward? So do you, I mean, is this, is this something that how frequently do you see this happen? Is this something that happens all the time because things move so fast? You know, it's it's pretty common right now in markets like Seattle where you've got a very high concentration of seed or angel investments going on. Uh, many of these investors, you know, have, have jumped into the you know venture capital game because they see, obviously, you know, the great returns. Everybody reads TechCrunch, Business Insider, et cetera, and they want to be part of that, right? But in many cases, a lot of these guys aren't necessarily familiar with the technologies, the market space, and what needs to be done to actually make these investment successful. And what happens then is, you know, 12 months hence, what became, what started out actually as a $50,000 investment has rapidly become a half a million dollar investment. And they're looking at their pocketbooks and going, you know, how am I going to get myself out of this? You know, I do believe in the company. I do like the management team, but something has to be done, right? Um, And it's no... 
you know, it's no, you know, black eye on the, on the founder, it's no black eye on the tech, but we just need someone to kind of come in here and do an assessment for us and, and help us figure out what needs to be done. And, and, and in many cases, you know, it's a situation where, look, you know, uh, the products works, the guys have a great business model, it's just simply going to take longer than everybody thought to actually get this thing moving. And so have some patience, right? Here's some, here's some areas where perhaps, you know, we can be of assistance in, in accelerating the business model. And then in other cases, obviously, there's, you know, it's, hey, look, you know, you guys, you know, were too late to the game, you spent three years and all of your seed capital building the product. And now you've got no dry powder to actually get it to market, right, right. which happens so, quite a lot. So and so Oh, I'm curious to know. So it sounds like you've come in to see a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of different scenarios where things have started well, obviously well enough to bring you in to try to help move things to the next stage. But but people have faced some kind of a hiccup. Um, I'm curious what are the, what are some of the mistakes you see? Or I mean, mistakes might I don't know. That's not I hope that's not too harsh a word. But you know, what are some of the things you see when you come in that are a little broken that people have done wrong that need to be corrected and to give people kind of a heads up on on you know w- ways to spot that stuff before it it becomes a problem. You know what I've what I've seen is uh, two things. Uh, one, you've got a situation. This is probably the most common where uh, founders, you know, primarily technical founders, will ray go out there and they'll raise some some seed capital, uh, get their project going, and every bit of that money goes into the product development piece. Which you know you know at the high level you think great man that's exactly where it should go. You need to build the product, but you also need to make sure that that along that way you're testing the your hypothesis with the marketplace so you know that there's a there there to get this product out to market. No one wants to basically come out, you know, with the better VHS product like Betamax was and realize that there's really no market. You've missed it, right? Yeah, I, I fall um, I fall prey to that with the, the businesses that I've run is I'm, so, I'm very product focused. And, uh, and I have a tendency to just want to see the thing be built. And I'm also, I'm, I, I can sell, but I'm not, I don't consider myself a sales guy. And so I tend to look at that as something that, that I don't love doing. And so I have a tendency to, to always gravitate back toward building, thinking that I have to build before I can sell. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in, in the end, you know, lots, most businesses fail and often I find I find out that something doesn't have market value until it's, it's already built. So what do you have any uh, advice for people on how to, I, we always hear about like minimum viable product and ways to kind of validate the market. What, what do you, what do you recommend to, to well, kind of get on top of that? Well, Mike, you, you, you bring up a good point. Cause look, you know, as, as founders, as, as I have been as well, we're builders right at the end of the day, right? That, that That's what we do. We build product, we build businesses, you know, and you know, the idea is obviously to make these things successful and there's a, there's a return uh, for everybody involved, you know, founders, employees, and, and obviously in, uh, financial stakeholders. But I think it, it's, it's less the minimum viable product and obviously you want to have something out there but I think the idea is to have you know a core group of people that you can continually bounce the concept off the you know off the wall with and say hey look you know this you know we, we talked six months ago this is how far we come with the product. You know, this is still kind of, you know, the, the thesis in terms of, you know, the need that we're solving. You know, do you still do you still see the market the same way as we did when we first started talking about this? Where do you see the changes going, right? And what do we need to be thinking about as we continue to evolve our business and get ready, get our product ready to go to market? Because while you're so focused on building that product, there's so many things happening in the ecosystem right now, and things change. 
right? And you have to always have your ear to the ground. And that doesn't mean you need to go out there and necessarily be kind of pre-selling this thing. But in a way, you are because all you're trying to do is simply make sure that what you're doing is continuing to solve a present need in the marketplace. And sometimes those needs can be very ephemeral and be there one day and go away the next. And other times, they're, you know, they're long-term needs. And it's really just kind of keeping, you know, your, your ear to the ground, understanding the market and making sure that your roadmap is aligning with that. And too, all too often, it's, and it's very easy, right? It's not a fault of anybody, but you're building, you're, down, you're deep in the code base, you know, it's 24-7, and that's all you're doing. But unfortunately, to build, a, to build a real viable business, that can't be all you're doing. You need to truly keep an eye on the marketplace and understand where, in fact, it's going and, and make sure that you're st- what you're building is still going to be relevant when you get it out there. Yes. Do you have any like specific, I'm trying to think, obviously it depends on the business and who your customer is. Um, I've, I've heard everything from, you know, for, for consumer facing startups, you know, go to a coffee shop, show people your app, show people things, get feedback. Um, you know, for enterprise sales, I've heard, you know, get on the phone, start making cold calls, even if, even if you're, you're not quite ready to, to make the sale, just to kind of get a sense of whether anyone's receptive. Um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on, on ways for, for a product focused person to, to kind of shift or, or some, some, I don't know, specific things they might be able to focus on to try to break themselves out of that mindset. You know, I always like, you know, starting to, you know, kind of continue to early seed your idea within the venture community, right? You know, there's, there's certain, you know, VCs, you know, specifically in Seattle market and elsewhere, who are more than happy to spend 30 minutes over coffee with a potential founder, even though you're not looking for capital or it may not be, you know, a fit for them, but they see so much stuff come across their desks. And if, and if they're actually a true VC, they're going to spend time with you because it's their role to actually continue to kind of foster that, that entrepreneurial ecosystem, you know, and there's a lot of guys that, that I point people to in the local market here in Seattle, you know, at some of the venture capital groups to go and talk to. Uh, because you know, for me as 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 a as an advisor coming in, it's always good to understand you know you know what the money community you know or the VC mm-hmm. community is thinking about things like this. Because at some point we're going to need a true venture round. You know, if there's going to be a there there for the business, and so you you want to start seeding those ideas early. And many of these guys have already got touch points into a lot of the customers you would go after anyhow, and they're going to have great empirical evidence of people who've who've looked at doing something similar or have tried to sell into the into a particular market, and they can give you that feedback back, you know, pretty quickly. And all it's going to cost you is a couple dollar cup, cup of coffee at Starbucks. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's great advice. And, and VCs, you know, not to say that they're pessimistic, but, but they come at things from a different perspective than, than you do as a founder. I, I think, you know, most people that, that found startups have, are, they, they believe strongly in their idea. They're, they're absolutely optimistic about the market or they wouldn't be going all in on this idea. Sometimes it's good to get some advice from a from someone who knows the knows the market, but also doesn't have that emotional stake, and and you know, not that they'll be um, pessimistic, but but will give you some honest, critical feedback on the business that you might not see uh, from your perspective. Yeah, Mike, I think you're spot on because you know it's that dispassionate look, right, and being able to give you kind of that hard feedback that sometimes founders don't like to hear, right? Like you said, you're passionate, you believe in this thing, it's going to be you know you know the next Tesla, right? Um, but in some cases, you know, it may not be. And it's Most important cases, to right? hear. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, you need to hear that kind of feedback because it's going to force you to test your hypothesis around your business and your product. And if you can't take that kind of feedback, uh, you know, you're starting at a huge disadvantage right out of the gate. Well, I'm certainly familiar with this idea of you build it, you've spent a ton of time building it, you're really 
you were locked into it, you were just engrossed in it and you're totally stoked and then you launch and then and then it just and there's just sort of like not the not the roar of the crowd that you anticipated. Or maybe there's a slight roar, or maybe there's a roar and then it quiets down. I mean yep. and this can be like a really difficult thing because emotionally I'm I'm kinda like Mike. I'm I mean I I, I would just like to go build the thing and then but but it's so it's so um, difficult when you hit when you, you you've launched something you got some, maybe you had some initial success and then things quiet down and you just kind of feel stuck yeah it's a tough spot yeah. emotionally to be it is a tough spot and you see that a lot you know in companies who are specifically in the app space right now I mean you know look the gold rush is over in the app market it's just there, there's too much noise right now and you're really pushing rope up a hill but there's a lot of guys who are still trying to kind of you know break through uh, with their apps and again you know, there's always going to be those outliers who are going to do fantastic right but there's got to be a bigger underlying story to that app to actually have it you know remain sticky for a long time I mean look you know for a while you saw the candy crush type of games and the zingas of the world be able to dominate in that space right but after a while unless there's something else that really kind of keeps people compelled into that space and you've got a broader product strategy around it it's tough to p- get people to continue to come back and do that and at the end of the day you know if you're going to basically you know build a business that's going to scale and have value i you know as as an exit opportunity or to be able to stand alone you have to have that it can't be just simply a one trick pony and that's where what happens is when you huddle down you're focused on the product, but you're not, but and you're continuing to exist in that echo chamber, if you will, and you're not going out there and you're not socializing this, and you're not getting that kind of feedback. That's typically what happens, and so it's very, very important that you continually, you know, stress test everything that you're doing about your business. And it's tough. Yeah, I can, I can, uh, I echo that in terms of the app world. The app world has been great to me, uh, but it's, it's that gold rush is is over, and I'd, I'd go as far as to say. You know, more strongly, word word it more strongly than that to say that you know if you're like you said, if you're not building something bigger than an app, you, you probably should be. Yeah. Um, it's just not a good time to be launching apps in the store right now. It's great for hobbyists or anybody that you know if, if you want to if you want to learn how to program or get involved in in you know building something. It's fantastic, but it's not a way to make a living anymore. Um, I, I my apps have been out since the beginning of the app store, and so I, I broke through at a time when you could break through, yeah. and there attention and so so it's still a great business but it's it's a declining business even for me and uh, and so I'm already trying to figure out where the next place is to be um, so for people that come to me now and say hey I'm thinking about making an app you know my advice is to you know try to think a little bigger about it doesn't mean an app might not be part of it but if it doesn't fit into some bigger picture um, it's it's not really a business it's more of just a, a you know a single product that may not make enough money to sustain it a, a, a long term. Well, you're right. You're right, Mike. I mean, you know, the, the apps will are con- going to continually have a place, you know, in the business and product ecosystem because they are an actual outgrowth. I mean, it's the most personal device you have right now. So if you're going to access a product, you know, the app is typically the way to go. But the product has to be bigger than that. You know, I mean, when, when you when you think of apps in terms of how they tie into say a a, a Salesforce, you know, or say ServiceMax, you know, out of California who does field services work, you know, in order to be able to touch, you know, with their field services crew, the apps absolutely play a role in that and actually make the make the overall product and the business proposition that much more compelling. Or you look at, you know, you know, companies like Smartsheet, for example, or ViewPath in the project management space, the ability to be able to access, you know, those 
technologies and those functions on a mobile device are extremely important. But to but to basically have those things exist as a standalone product in and of themselves is, in my mind, uh, you know, not a real viable uh, a viable product. And you know, and, and look, we're seeing the same phenomenon in other areas. You know, uh, Joe and I were just chatting before we jumped onto the show here about you know the the AR and the VR spaces right now where there's tremendous hype you know about you know the possibilities around you know augmented reality and and the headsets that are coming out that you can plug your your phones into but you know which I think is great because it's spurring a lot of innovation there's a lot of money going into these things but we still have to continue to think about what is the underlying business model right and what's going to continue to have legs and for me personally I'm much more bullish on the VR space because I think that that ultimately that's going to have the mu- much more applicability to you know, consumers' lives, you know, to businesses' lives, et cetera, because, you know, we, we all exist, obviously, in reality, but to the extent you can augment that with additional data, kind of like what we're doing with the mobile phone right now, is kind of where I see the market going. You know, the challenge with VR, as you know, is basically that the hardware involved is so intrusive, right? Whether it's, you know, the Recon Jet is still this big, huge thing that sits on your glasses while you're riding your bike or the Google glasses and you got guys like Scoble, you know, you know, taking pictures of himself in the shower, which no one wants to see. Um, and then you got VR on the other hand, which is, you know, a tremendous technology. It gives people that huge immerse, hugely immersive experience that they've wanted, but it's a very hit-driven business as well. It's like the video game, you know, console space, right? You know, you can continue to, you can start out with that and you can have these hits after hits after hits, but pretty soon, you know, you run out of hits. And so what happens then to that particular product? And that's why, and that's what I think we're going to see on the VR space is that, you know, the, the hit driven issue is going to, is going to rear its head. And that industry is going to have to rethink itself and figure out where does it go from here. And that's why I think VR has got a much, a much longer road ahead of itself in terms of its viability because it's not hit driven. It's actually a utility. And as we can value engineer the hardware down, which, which we're, which obviously is going to happen, it's going to find much more utility in the marketplace. And I think obviously bring up, you know, much more opportunity for those companies who are moving in that direction. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. I mean, that's the video game business is a tough business and and in in many ways if you're making games for VR, you're basically just you're you're getting into the video game business. It's just a different console, it's a different device that people are using to play the game. So you're still playing that same game where people pay, you know, often one time for the game and then, you know, you're hoping you have a new game to sell them in a year or two. Um, that's that's a tough business. I mean, it's a great business to be in if you're creative and you like to make games. Um, but I, I guess I would say if you're thinking about getting the VR, to me, the more interesting piece from a startup standpoint or from a big business standpoint would be either either business utilities or some kind of a platform, maybe platforms for communication, platforms for, you know, like like what whatever uh, would be like the Skype for VR or, or some kind of... Uh, uh, network where people play games against each other, <laughs> something bigger than just a single game where you're maybe part of the the architecture or part of the 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 fabric of what becomes VR as opposed to just a single application. Um, I don't know, you know, that's a harder harder nut to crack, and and I don't know what it'll look like, but uh, I think those are the companies that'll you know actually grow into something big. You know, and and Facebook and some other big companies are already kind of taking big stakes in that. Maybe they're maybe they're well positioned to do that. 
Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, and again, that that speaks to the to the to the to the broader business opportunity, right? So, you know, if you you look at the the lessons we've seen with Xbox and with PlayStation, they started out as basically video game consoles, and now they're an entire media center because they realize that you can't continue, you can't build a sustainable business on a, on a hit driven business model. You know, they're they're not, you know, studio businesses, right? There's a hardware component, you know, involved with these companies, and in order to be able to make that sustainable, you have to offer additional value added or you know, contextually relevant services, right? And so now, now in addition to video games, we can watch television, we can we can DVR content, we can you know watch videos from YouTube, all within these what was once you know essentially a gaming console. And so I think the VR space is going to find itself um, in in that very same. Uh, situation where you know where do we go with with VR right you know w- once once the once the the bloom is off the rose if you will on the gaming side you know what is the application and I think your point is, is spot on and well it becomes more of an enterprise play you know do we take VR into you know the 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 operating rooms do we take VR into the training people you know places does VR offer opportunities you know in terms of data and analytics and how you know and sifting through you know the noise to find you know information in a much more holistic fashion than you can just simply within the desktop. And I think I think that ultimately they'll get there. Um, but the question then remains is, you know, where does the, you know, the DMARC sit between AR and VR? And for me personally, and this is just a preference of mine, I think VR has has the, lo- the longer shelf life uh, between the two. Um, you're going to see much more hype and I think much more, you know, uh, exits, if you will, if you, or a lot of money going into AR. But I think long-term VR is going to win the game. Yeah, it's an interesting question. AR versus VR. A lot of people. I feel like like VR. Having tried the Hololens and having tried, you know, the Vive and Oculus. You know, I like VR better in terms of when you put it on. You think, wow, this is really transformative. It's making me feel like I'm in another place. It it just feels a little bit more magical in terms yeah. of what the technology is. But I can see the logic on why AR might be might be a better play in a sense that. VR, because it isolates you from the world, could very well be limited. You know, if, if AR is the equivalent to, I mean, if VR is the equivalent to like a gaming console, then if you're going into VR, you may be making a decision that you're like, now you're playing, you're in the gaming space. And so you're you're in that hit driven business. Whereas any kind of um, like, you know, helping people in operating rooms or for training purposes, anything that isn't meant to be a completely immersive entertaining experience, maybe AR is better because you can you can still do that visualization and you can still see what things would look like but but maybe without the reason without the necess- without the necessity to kind of block out everything in the outside world. Yeah. Yep. Because look, you know, we 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 want to be able to interact with the spaces around us, right? But we also want to have the capability to access information to better experience, if you will, the world around us. And that's what VR, I think, offers as opposed to AR, because in AR, you, you really are. You're, you're kind of closed off. It's basically you within a cocoon. Um, and again, you know, the technology is going to evolve. The business models will evolve along with it. Um, all of that stuff's going to happen. But again, just, just from what I'm seeing today, right, and just taking kind of stepping back and saying, you know, where are the, where are the true use cases for this? Um, to me, you know, the augmented space makes a lot more sense. But look, there's there's smarter guys than me out there trying to solve that problem. But just just my personal preference. And I think it, again, it dovetails to kind of our earlier discussion about you know thinking you know long term about the product, right? Don't build just a product just for a product's sake, and and don't be so myopic as you're going through that process. Continually test the hypotheses. Talk to your investors. Talk with people out in the ecosystem, and make sure you you know you are building to kind of you know where the you know where the market is going. You know, not where it is today, or not where it was yesterday. 
yeah, maybe to change gears. I know that that often when you come into a company, you're looking at kind of turning it around or helping get that return for for the investors that that asked you to kind of get involved. Um, do you have any advice for startup founders that that are you know they've got a going concern and they're thinking about how they can exit? You know, what are some good ways to prepare a company and thinking about how to be acquired? How, you know, how how to how to get to that exit point. Well, there's always the cliche that companies, you know, are, you know, um, acquired, not sold, you know, so it, you know, that that's, you know, it, it's a tough question, to be honest. And where I've seen success or where the companies I've advised seen success is that it's been an existing partner that's come in and said, look, you know, your technology stack is great. We've been co-selling along with you for a while. We love you and your team. This is not something that, that we want to build inside ourse- in, internally ourselves. We know that if we did, it'd be, you know, two years hence and we'd probably miss the marketplace. And so having, you know, strategic partners that you've actually been to market with, you've demonstrated success, that there's a there there from a customer perspective, and you can show a path to monetization. And really what you're talking about is just simply having the ability to scale underneath a larger umbrella, if you will. You know, that's what's going to, you know, really get you in a position to be able to exit the business if that's what you're looking to do. Um, you know, if you're, you know, if you want to go out there and try to sell this thing, I mean, yes, you can, you can hire, you know, kind of a mid-market investment banker to help you out with that. But by and large, you know, you're going to spend a lot of money and a lot of resources. And, and those typically, you know, don't have a high success rate. And so it's finding the right partners and, and having a very candid conversation, saying we're doing great. Uh, we've, you know, enjoyed working with you guys, but we think that, you know, we're better together. And, you know, maybe let's start with a more of a white label solution. Let's take that to market and see how that how that performs. And typically, you know, both parties will kind of have that epiphany, you know, over coffee, over drinks, or even just in the in the midst of a conference room saying, you know, why don't we think about doing something like this? And it might be a, a good reason to make sure, like, so when you're in that situation and you're a, you're a young company and you're trying to get that partnership, um, you know, there's a tendency to want to maybe give more than you should to get the deal because you want to start creating the relationship and you think, well, well, you know, this will pay out later. But I, I would say that there's maybe some, uh, you know, you want to make sure in a sense that you're not giving too good a deal because you, you always want to make sure that, that buying you uh, represents a good value to the, to the buyer. And if you give them too sweet a deal, then the, the value in buying you is more about keeping you away from competitors rather than, um, I don't know, gaining some cost efficiency. So I guess, I don't know, do, what do you think about that? Do you ever see people give too much away when they're trying to set up those relationships and then make it hard to sell? No, no, because, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of founders out there and a lot, and it's an easy trap to fall into where you think, Hey, look, let's just, let's reduce the friction on this and let's give these guys a sweetheart deal and get them to be reselling or, or partnering with us out there. And in many cases, that's the wrong approach because the cheaper the product is, right? The less people really kind of value it. And so it's important to stay, you know, stay true to kind of what you're taking to market out there. Yeah, you you want to leave something on the table because if, if you're going to white label the deal and they need to be able to make a return on that as well, that that's fine. Um, and there's various percentages that come into play there. But, but you're absolutely right. You know, you want to maintain the value of, of – of your product because, you know, you've put effort into this and this is something that they haven't done and it's, and it's off clearly offering value to them and to their customers, right? So you don't want to, you know, give too much away, but I think there's a way to play the game, if you will, where it's, it's both, you know, a situation where, look, you know, we need to add, you know, we being, you know, the strategic partner more to our tech stack and you guys have that opportunity for us. But at the same time, if we don't grab these guys, someone else will. 
And so, you know, you've got to, you, you kind of have to play that, that, that duality, if you will, or that dual role and saying, you know, look, you know, we're out in the marketplace. This is what we're doing. We have been having conversations with, you know, with, with other people who are in the same space as you. Um, but, you know, you've been our partner for, you know, a lot longer. We'd love to do something with you guys. You know, what do you think? Um, and I think having just that kind of a candid conversation, because at the end of the day, you're still partners. You're not giving anything away. Um, you're not cutting them a sweetheart deal. You're trying to find a way to both be successful in the marketplace. And in many cases, you know, that could that could be together. And in some cases, it could be continue to remain separate. Um, you know, it really depends upon, you know, the dynamics of, of the situation. But again, it all goes back to what we talked about, you know, at the very beginning is having those people that you can trust, whether it's a partner, a local VC, you know, and a, someone on your advisory board that you can sit down and have a candid conversation without, you know, any kind of, you know, feeling you're going to get a repercussion out of it and say, this is what I want to achieve. This is what we need to be doing. This is where I see the market going. You know, do you see it the same way? And if not, you know, give me the bad news now, you know, give me the tough love now, because if I'm going to be successful, I need to basically embrace that. And I need to do what needs to be done to make, to make my company successful. That's great. Great advice. Um, so yeah, so we're going to wrap up soon, but do you have any parting thoughts or, or words of wisdom for people before we, uh, we head out or ways that people can get in touch with you also? Um, yeah. Any, anything to yeah. leave us with? Um, you know, again, like I said, I do a lot of work with a lot of the local VCs here. Um, you know, primarily Voyager Capital, the guys there are great. Uh, we've got a couple of portfolio companies that are launching here uh, very shortly. Uh, so that's been a very exciting, uh, you know, uh, bit of news for us over the last few months. But, you know, really, I think, you know, the thing is, if, if uh, you know, companies are looking for someone to, you know, just bounce some ideas off of me, I'm always ta- happy to talk to people. Uh, you know, I love learning about new technologies and new business models that are out there. It kind of keeps me up on what's going on. And they can go to the website, uh, soda-media.com. Uh, you know, be able to contact us, you know, uh, through there. We can have someone, you know, do an introductory call and then uh, take it from there, basically. Yeah, on, on, uh, on the Voyager Capital note, uh I don't think I've announced this on the podcast before, but uh, Randall Lucas and I, we head out to the UW's uh, computer science department uh, once a month, first first Wednesday of every month, and we're out there from like 11 to noon, and we just talk to people who want to talk to a local VC and a local startup lawyer, and um, so if you're if you're in and around the neighborhood out there, um, think about think about swinging by the computer science school and saying hi, uh, first Wednesdays of every month. And uh, so anyway, thank you so much for being on the show, Anthony. I, so we, so you, so just like, I guess, the, I guess the most interesting thing people probably could take away from this podcast is if you want to, if you really want to talk to somebody who's got a lot of experience in, in your arena, you're, you're around and available and, and, and sound like really accessible and people can just probably ping you off the, off the web and you'll sit down with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's that's a really nice offer. Yeah. So for folks out there who want to who want to pick the brain of somebody who's got a lot of experience, uh, think about Anthony Bontrager. Great. Thanks, Anthony, for being on the show. This has been really uh, a great episode. Uh, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for having me.